Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We often discuss on this program how relations between the United States and China have completely deteriorated. And it's a really worrying trend because these are the world's two biggest economies. The whole planet has a stake in how things turn out. Well, my guest today has a big proposal to reset the relationship. Ro Khanna is a Democrat who has represented California's 17th Congressional District, Silicon Valley, since 2017. In April, he gave a speech at Stanford University calling for what he calls a constructive rebalancing with China by reducing trade deficits and tensions, opening lines of communication, and boosting military deterrence. It's easier said than done, of course. So the question is how? And why would China go along with these plans? Well, I sat down with Kanna for a long interview. He is a member of Congress's select committee on the Chinese Communist Party. We discussed China, of course, but we also got to industrial policy, the war in Ukraine, and India. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. You can do that too by signing up on foreignpolicy.com. Once you're there, You'll see that I'm doing an AMA on this podcast soon. That's an Ask Me Anything. So send in your questions for things you'd like me to address. You can do that on the site as well or by emailing us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Once again, that's podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. For now, here's Congressman Ro Khanna. Let's dive in. Congressman, welcome to FP Live. Thank you for having me, Ravi. Appreciate it. Our pleasure. So you made an important speech at Stanford University in April, and you laid out a plan for what you call a constructive rebalancing with China. We'll get into the details in a minute, but let me just start with this. Why do you think a reset is required? What exactly is the White House getting wrong? Well, what we've gotten wrong for 40 years is allowed American manufacturing to hollow out uh, have a lot of resentment build up, understandably, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, or Heartland, uh, and not have, in China's case, a sufficient uh, domestic consumer market, uh, and not ha- have underinvestment in China on uh, technology and finance uh, industries that actually have produced a lot of modern wealth. So I would argue that both countries have been uh, unbalanced in how they have developed their economies. And that has also aggravated uh, resentment and tensions, much like in the opium war, the structural trade deficits did between Britain and China back then. Now, some of this strikes me as a self-critique. Of course, you are on the select committee on China, as I mentioned. And, you know, before we get into the details of your speech, I think it strikes me as several members of the committee, including the chair, Mike Gallagher, including yourself, have never had the chance to go to China, in part because of relations being the way they have been for the last few years. Does that strike you as a problem when it comes to policymaking? Well, I've said I'd like to go to China and I need to uh, find a Republican partner and sign up to be able to do it as a member of the House of Representatives. I do think it is important. I made the comment this morning as we had the China hearings that the most important thing was Dr. Kissinger sitting in China uh, meeting Xi Jinping. It's not unprecedented. I mean, my understanding is Bill Clinton, before he went became president, went to Taiwan four times and had never been uh, to China. So, uh, you know, I also think China now is making a big deal of going to Taiwan, which has not been the case. They didn't complain when Bill Clinton went there as governor four times, and they didn't complain when Jimmy Carter went there after his presidency. But it would be good for uh, American policymakers to go there just to find out firsthand what's going on and to be part of the communication. And I certainly would like to do that. I'll take that point. So I want to get to the broader ideas um, you've put forward on China then. On rebalancing trade, one of your proposals is to impose tariffs and buy American provisions Explain that a little bit more. And, you know, isn't some of that more protectionism exactly what free trade advocates have criticized this White House of doing? Well, let's look at the facts. Uh, Currently, the top 15 steel companies in the world, nine of them are in China, uh, not a single one in the United States. I don't understand how we let that happen as an American nation. 
It was uh, terrible, not just in terms of jobs, it's terrible in terms of our industrial strength. What Roosevelt did is took us from the 18th best military to the first best military by having the state partner with the private sector uh, to build industrial strength. And I believe we ought to have strategic tariffs, particularly carbon-based, a fee on carbon, so that we don't have the blast furnaces in China that are polluting the, the climate and also leaving us structurally vulnerable, but we build our industry here. But a strategic price on carbon isn't enough. We also need financing by the United States government to scale in critical industries, as we did with the CHIPS Act, and we need to partner with uh, labor to make sure that these are uh, skilled and good paying jobs. Uh, I believe briefly what happened in uh, FDR's experiment was very successful. Uh, the unemployment was around 14%. FDR comes in uh, with the war and he goes to Ford, he goes to companies and he says, we're going to partner with government and labor to build the industrial base. Unemployment falls to 4%. The Soviet Union makes a mistake. They look at the success the United States have and they say, we can have a perpetual war economy in peacetime. And this leads to them producing things that consumers don't want. It leads to massive consumer shortages, a lack of innovation. America comes and says, well, we don't want to do the communist model. We want to do a free market model. And that's understandable. That's why we get Steve Jobs with personal computers. That's why we have much more efficient allocation of capital. But we make the mistake that we so overreact to the Soviet Union that we embrace free market absolutism with a diminished role for the state. And that leads to the situation we have now where we've got tons of capital going to the next social media app and not a single steel company in the top 15. I don't believe that that's in our strategic interest either. Uh, I believe we need to have a balance between a free market system, but also strategic investment in critical industries to remain the preeminent nation in the 21st century. So we're sort of moving into economics a little bit. So I'm going to go there and come back to China. You've said, let's have a CHIPS Act for aluminum, for steel, for paper, for microelectronics, for advanced auto parts, and for climate technologies. I'm quoting you there. Who's going to pay for this? I mean, the budget deficit tripled to more than 10% of GDP during the pandemic, and that's way more than other developed countries in Europe. How does this all add up? Well, some of it won't be that much. I mean, if we were to spend about $100 billion a year, that's about one-eighth of our defense budget, but we spent it on things like uh, steel and aluminum, uh, we could do a lot. The CHIPS Act was about $52 billion, and that was uh, over multiple years. So $100 billion in a year would allow us to bring modern steel plants into place and modern aluminum plants that are also uh, good for the climate. And then Rubio and I have called for a National Development Council, which would look and partner with communities and see what those communities needed. So I would take a couple strategic industries like steel, like aluminum, but then I would also uh, be flexible and say, is there a certain place that wants a modern paper mill? And maybe then no, they want to be doing something on the grid. And I would listen to the local communities about what the assets are and what we can help them do so that we can preserve and support modern factories in communities that have been hollowed out. It's just that there are some economists who would say, Richir Sharma at the Financial Times, for example, that, you know, interest payments on debt are beginning to rise. And at some point, all of this investment, you know, new, new deal of sorts, it becomes unsustainable when you add it all up, no? I don't see why that's the case. First of all, we have a lot of extraneous spending. If you look at the defense budget, which is a trillion dollars over a year, almost. Why aren't people talking about the price gouging that's taking place there. 60 Minutes did a whole report. We're paying $10,000 for an oil pressure switch, which NASA is paying $328 for. We're overpaying Raytheon 40% in some cases for the Patriot missile, overpaying Lockheed the same amount. We have gotten the modernization of ICBMs where we can have the, the, the Minutemen systems improved instead of having all these billions spent on uh, the new new system. So I would look at where we can have some of that strategic savings and instead build more artillery. We don't have enough artillery. Build more steel, build more aluminum. It could be some of it could be a reorientation of our defense. The other thing is we could be having a greater tax on extraordinary wealth generation on people who have done extraordinarily well. I mean, I've got almost $10 trillion in my district. I keep saying tax some of the billionaires more. They keep sending me back to Congress. I don't understand how this is a hard vote for anyone else. 
Um, I'm sure that'll work for California, less popular elsewhere. Um, let me come back to China then. So, you know, part of the recommendation you made in that Stanford speech was to reduce the trade imbalance with China. And I guess one question there that strikes me as obvious is why would China go along with some of the recommendations that you're making, especially given everything Washington has done to constrain Beijing's rise and its access to high-end semiconductors, for example, which is a move you helped originate? Well, China will go along with it because if you if you read Xi Jinping, or it should go along with it, Xi Jinping recognizes that their economy is, uh, needs more diversification. Uh, he himself recognizes that you can't have an economy that is solely focused on export production where you don't have enough production to meet your own consumer demand, where you don't have improvement uh, on consumer welfare and services needed for a well-functioning economy, and you don't have sufficient diversification into finance and technology, which has driven so much wealth generation uh, in the modern economy. It's not a coincidence that my district in Silicon Valley uh, it has $10 trillion of market cap and is in technology and that the financial capital in New York has done so well. So I think Xi Jinping recognizes the need to diversify the economy. It's a hard thing to do, though, because it's a painful process, but it is in the long-term interest of uh, China to do that. Now, how do we get them to do that? Uh, I think we have to look at uh, carbon-adjusted uh, uh, tax in, in, as one thing. I think we have to be tough on our trade negotiation like Reagan was with the Plaza Accords in Japan and Germany. They, uh, China has a huge stake in having access to uh, the American market. By definition, they have a bigger stake because we have a massive trade deficit. But I also think it has to be coupled with the affirmation of the One China policy uh, that Kissinger originated and that has been affirmed in the three communique. Because if we have the One China policy, it seems to me that's what China deeply cares about. And then they're willing to have a conversation about the economic rebalancing. And when I uh, had met with uh, Chin Gong when he was ambassador to the U.S., he himself acknowledged the uh, problem of structural trade deficits uh, that was an, uh, one of the causes of the opium war. Now, in the opium war, Britain was totally wrong. They took Indian opium. They invaded uh, China. Uh, it was Britain that was wrong, not China. But the lesson is still that you shouldn't have structural trade deficits to have world stability and peace. You mentioned uh, Foreign Minister Chin Gong. Do you know where he is right now? Oh, I don't know. I don't know him that well. I, I had a uh, cordial uh, relationship, though, though candid relationship, when he was in the United States. And uh, I don't know where he is. Yeah, uh, just for uh, our viewers who do not know um, uh, he hasn't been heard from um, for a few days now. You can read our James Palmer uh, on that on our website. Um, so let me just come back to something you were describing about um, affirming the One China policy. It's one thing to say that, but on the other hand, when President Biden frequently says that you know the United States will come to Taiwan's aid, you know, with military uh, were China to attack, China gets very upset. Even in your recent visit to Taiwan. That was something that I think Beijing pushed back against. It upsets them. How do you thread that needle between wanting to support Taiwan, but also not angering Beijing and being seen to be reaffirming the one China policy? Because so far, what America is doing doesn't seem to be working on that front. Well, I think what I did in Taiwan worked. I went to Taiwan. I affirmed the one China policy there. Uh, by the way, I think both the DPP and uh, the other parties in uh, Taiwan, of course, the KMT, all are for the status quo. They want this to be peacefully resolved in dialogue with China in terms of the status of how Taiwan emerges. Uh, and they don't want war. But what the United States can say in the same breath as we affirm One China is One China is premised on non-military invasion. Uh, it's premised on non-coercion. And so as long as that's the case, uh, the United States recognizes one China, but under the Taiwan Relations Act, which passed uh, at the same time that President Carter recognized China, the United States also said that we would assist in Taiwan in any defense if there were a military uh, invasion. And under that act, we can help ensure Taiwan's deterrence capability to ensure that that military invasion uh, doesn't take place. And I, I think President Biden when he has talked about assisting Taiwan with 
military weapons or equipment is talking about our obligations under the Taiwan Relation Act. You know, I'll just say Beijing's comeback to that would be that you have all these senior U.S. officials visiting Taiwan. Very few of them go to China or have been to China. And that sends a signal. And I think some of their complaints are are around the signaling and the messaging that goes into that. Well, like I said, Bill Clinton went to Taiwan four times before he, before he became president. He called Beijing, uh, I think, butchers of Beijing. And I don't think anyone would argue that Bill Clinton didn't have a policy that uh, sought to engage China. In fact, I'm, I think many of us are critical with what ended up happening with China in terms of not uh, having uh, been allowed into the World Trade Organization without any appropriate safeguards or the invocation of those safeguards. So I don't think China should overread uh, visits into Taiwan. Now, that said, I do think it's important for people to visit China. I've had dialogue with people in China, even not having visited, but I think it is important for people to visit. And I've supported Secretary Blinken going there. I support Secretary Yellen going there. I think it would be terrific to have a delegation from Congress go there. I'm committed to going uh, when that opportunity presents itself, recognizing that I'm in the minority in the House of Representatives, and uh, these things have to be approved through a Republican majority. And what do you say then to your colleagues in Congress, um, uh, the chair of the Select China Committee, Mike Gallagher, when he criticizes Secretary Yellen or Secretary Blinken for going to China? What is your comeback usually? I don't think, uh, you know, I have a very good relationship with Mike. I don't think Mike uh, has uh, ever criticized Secretary Blinken or Secretary Yellen for going. I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure he has never said that we should not have engagement. He may have critiques of the administration and enforcing more on the uh, the Uyghur uh, sanctions and making sure that we're doing more to prevent uh, technology from going. And I believe the administration is doing a lot on that. But I think he would agree that we need to have dialogue. We need to have constructive engagement. And my hope is he would agree that we should have a group of uh, members of Congress on the committee, some subcommittee, some group going to China. Right. So let me ask you this. One of the other arguments um, you've been making over the last few months on China is that we need to get China to play by the same rules as America does. And you've made the point that China distorts the markets with blanket subsidies, with IP theft, currency manipulation, not to mention human rights violations. So how? How do you get them to play by the rules? Why would they want to play by those rules? Well, the first thing we do is we don't give them a choice. We say America is going to have a goal of bringing steel back. America is going to have a goal of bringing aluminum back. We're going to have the right type of government purchasing power. We're going to have the right type of government strategic tariff on, uh, based on carbon pricing. So we have demand side policy and we're going to have supply side policy by providing the financing for some of these industries to come back. This is going to happen, China. And so you should recognize that it's in your own interest to diversify your economy. And if America asserts that we are simply going to become a manufacturing superpower again, they're going to have to adjust to that. At the same time, I think we have engaged dialogue with China to say that our becoming a manufacturing superpower is not a decoupling, it's a rebalancing. And it is in your own interest to rebalance and let us work together where we can on issues of AI, on issues of climate, uh, on issues of scientific research on health, uh, and let us work where we can to ensure a peaceful uh, conversation and to de-escalate the situation in Taiwan so that they don't make a mistake of engaging in coercive or military action against Taiwan. And we continue to affirm the One China policy. Congressman, my team just sent me this, so I, I just want to quote uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher. Uh, yeah. said, after Secretary Blinken left Beijing with little to show for his trip, doubling down by sending additional cabinet-level officials like Secretary Yellen would only perpetuate this vicious cycle. I'll just leave it at that, um, but, but that's him on the record there. Let me ask you this. Um, uh, it, I take it that you are not in favor of the decoupling that the likes of former USTR Bob Lighthizer has called for. And recently, the Biden administration seems to have shifted to talking about de-risking. Are you able to describe what de-risking is? 
Well, I would call it rebalancing. You know, that's why I, I, I uh, recommend my own speech at Stanford, where I call it constructive rebalancing. A, a total decoupling is unrealistic for anyone who's sort of uh, in talking to folks like Elon Musk or others. I mean, you shut down 20 to 30 percent of global GDP uh, the, the day you do that. Or you talk to Tim Cook, you talk to uh, Bob Iger, you talk to any of the American in industry. If you tomorrow said we're going to get zero percent from China all at once, uh, you would literally have a 20 to 30 percent decline in global GDP. But I think that the question is, how do we get enough of the critical industries to have strength in the United States for things that are obvious, like steel, for things that are important, like the technologies of the future of semiconductors or uh, other areas? How do we build that uh, in the United States? And I would say that that is uh, the rebalancing of the economy. I guess de-risking would be another way of saying uh, uh, that we need to uh, have important industry in America. But de-risking is such a consultant uh, gibberish. I mean, would Roosevelt have ever given a speech saying, let's de-risk America? No, that doesn't inspire. We should talk about having industrial strength, becoming a manufacturing superpower, uh, and, and inspiring America to build, uh, not sort of McKinsey speak. I should point out de-risking emerged as a term from Europe um, by uh, Ursula von der Leyen and has since been borrowed by successive members of uh, the Biden administration cabinet, uh, USDR Catherine Tai, Secretary Yellen, uh, many others are now using it quite regularly. But I, I take your point in that it well, is- Well, I think they should visit Johnstown. I think they should visit Johnstown, Pennsylvania and Lordstown, Ohio. No normal American speaks like that. You know, president Biden wouldn't speak like that. He wouldn't be president if he was talking about de-risking on the campaign trail. And people like Churchill and Roosevelt and or Reagan or the the leaders, you have to inspire a people. Uh, you have to have a vision that's going to move people. The vision that'll move Americans is being a manufacturing superpower, having industrial strength. Uh, and I think that it's important for leaders to talk about in language that resonates with people. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which we often use in these discussions, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned the CHIPS Act, so I want to dive into that a little bit more. Um, you helped write the basis uh, for what became the CHIPS Act. And there are two aspects I want to explore with you. One is industrial policy, because I think that's at the crux of some of the larger things you're arguing, not just for chips, but also for steel and aluminum. History shows industrial policy doesn't always work, and it's often not effective. Uh, Adam Posen and many other economists have written about this extensively. But two, in trying to contain China's access to semiconductors longer term, you may end up inducing Beijing to invest in innovation as well. And it also ends up souring the relationship, which goes against many of the things you're talking about in a reset. So how do you square all of that? Well, I don't understand the argument for those who say that uh, smart strategic state intervention in partnership with the private sector doesn't work. If you look at the two biggest examples of it, in FDR in World War II, it was a, a staggering success. And if you ask Hamilton, who built America's industry it was a staggering success. Uh, Lincoln, I would argue, a staggering success with the railroads. And Eisenhower, who set up NASA, who set up a DARPA and had a massive investment also in the infrastructure, a staggering success. So 
I would argue that the Soviets, which took sort of state planning at all times and a war economy at all times, that doesn't work. But strategic state intervention in partnership with the private sector to build uh, important strategic industry is how America became a, a, a superpower. So I guess I'm dubious at what these studies are that they're citing. If they're saying that American investment in startups is not a good idea, that's different than America saying we there are certain strategic industries we want to have in the United States and we need to partner with the private sector to do that. I think the criticism from the likes of Adam Posen and others, and this was a cover story in foreign policy a few months ago, is just that there are historic examples of countries backing national champions, uh, whether it's Boeing or Airbus. And a lot of that kind of backing can lead to uh, a subsidies race, which is often not effective, often leads to a lot of overspending, corruption, uh, inefficiencies. Um, but not only that, that it can also hurt and harm innovation and some of the very well-meaning objectives uh, that come along with that. These are critiques, especially of the IRA, but to some extent also the CHIPS Act. Well, I think it's a valuable critique maybe in other countries that uh, have more of a corruption uh, issue. It's a cautionary tale in the United States to make sure that there are ethical safeguards. And I do think we should be doing some of this at a federal level so you don't have state races to the bottom in terms of subsidy competition. But the critique of policies of state intervention has to address why Hamilton, why Lincoln, why FDR succeeded to the extent they did. Uh, and my argument is that's what built the American industrial base. Now, I would grant that we can't have uh, state intervention that interferes at the excess uh, and limits uh, a lot of free enterprise activity. But when you look at a U.S. economy that is at $20 billion trillion a year, and you're saying let's have $100 billion a year of state strategic investment in industry, then you are basically saying an investment of less than 1%. That is hardly something that is, strikes me as massive uh, intervention, far less than what FDR did, far less than what Lincoln did, far less than what Hamilton called for. True. It just adds up when you add other sectors like steel and aluminum and uh, clean energy to it. Um, but chips in general, I think, leads us nicely to Taiwan, uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo has said that the CHIPS Act will reduce America's, quote, untenable reliance on Taiwan's chip makers. Let me ask you this. If the U.S. didn't rely as much as it did on Taiwan for chips, wouldn't that change Washington's desire to protect Taiwan from China? Well, our desire is to affirm the one China policy, which is not to have China have military uh, coercion over uh, over Taiwan. I don't think so. I mean, we're def we're standing up for Ukraine, even though Ukraine isn't producing semiconductor chips. It's because of the value of not seeing uh, a large power take over another power. And I think if through military coercion and the same principle would apply there. And secondly, no one is envisions, even those of us who want more uh, domestic manufacturing coming uh, to the United States and semiconductors, that TSMC is going to go anywhere or not be part of the future of semiconductors. And so even 20, 30 years from now, you're going to have TSMC having a headquarters in Taiwan and having some production in Taiwan. What we're talking about is more diversification. Let's not just have 12%. Let's try to go to 30, 40%. TSMC is still going to have a, a role in that as they do in Arizona. I'm getting a lot of questions from our subscribers about Taiwan. So let me go there. Kirit Mehta and several others how should Washington deter Beijing from invading Taiwan? You were there this year. What have you learned about the most effective way to ensure China never takes that step? First, affirm the one China policy. Make it clear, as Secretary Blinken did, that we're not for uh, Taiwan, Taiwanese independence. I think some of the fringe elements, extreme elements in America that have suggested that are uh, creating uh, a, a dangerous paradigm. Uh, we should be affirming what Dr. Kissinger came up with and Nixon came up with and has been affirmed by three communique on the one China policy. But then we need to make sure that China understands that military intervention or coercion through a blockade or through cutting off communication or electricity is completely unacceptable, that the United States under the Taiwan Relations Act 
uh, will provide assistance to Taiwan under that cir circumstance where China is threatening coercion or military assistance. We need to maintain naval superiority in the Pacific to provide that de deterrence. And the Indo-PECM general has testified under oath that we have currently that naval superiority to deter any invasion from China. China shouldn't underestimate the American ability to do that. And we need to have Taiwan uh, have arms to be uh, as, a, as deterrent. Uh, and I have supported those uh, arms sales to Taiwan. So I would have effective deterrence, clear-eyed deterrence with a combination of affirmation of the one China policy. My last question on China, and then I'll move to a few other topics. One of the tentpoles of what you've been arguing about is keeping lines of communication open. Those lines of communication have not been open over the last few years, especially military to military. How worried are you about that? And, and how do you go about, uh, I mean, the proposal is one thing, but how do you go about implementing what you're describing, just given how resistant many of your colleagues are to that kind of communication? Well, it's complex, and Secretary Blinken has done a phenomenal job. I mean, he's out there. He's he was meant there. He's trying to talk about military to military communication. People say, "Well, why didn't he establish it?" Well, it's complicated. I mean, we have sanctioned, as you know, the person on China's side who uh, represents defense, and so they're saying, "Well, uh, yes, you can have Secretary Austin pick up a phone call and call it the Secretary of." defense in China, and he'll take the call in a matter of crisis. But you have sanctioned under the Uyghurs Act or before the Uyghurs Act. This was because of the person's involvement on something related to Russia. You've sanctioned the very person that you want to sit down with. And those are the difficult issues that Secretary Blinken is trying to, to resolve while uh, preserving American national interests. Now, it's easy for politicians to get up there and criticize Secretary Blinken, but then you solve the Rubik's Cube of trying to do what he's trying to do to set up military-to-military -military communication. So I think it requires statesmanship, it requires leadership, and uh, that's why I believe that Secretary Blinken actually has acquitted himself very well in this situation and to try to get to some place. But look, here's the one point I want to make, Ravi, that is so important. That Gallup did a poll recently, and they asked people retroactively which president do you most admire? And guess who it was? It was John F. Kennedy. And people hate this idea that, you know, John F. Kennedy gets more credit than Lyndon Johnson, even though Johnson did Medicare and Civil Rights Act and all the legislation. And one of the reasons he gets so much credit, and one of the reasons he's someone who I deeply admire, is he spoke to the not just American aspiration, he spoke to the human aspiration. At the height of the Cold War, John Kennedy talked about peace. He talked about moving humanity forward. He talked about the march of science. And he talked about the importance of engagement with the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. If Kennedy could be for that then, if Kennedy could dream of a better world in 1960, certainly in the year 2023, we can dream of a better world in a world which is striving for peace. And we should strive for a 21st century that avoids the world wars and the Cold War, as opposed to just quickly, lazily saying, well, we're in a Cold War with China. Really? Is that what we want for the 21st century? More Cold Wars and World Wars? Can we not learn from the past in humanity and do better? Uh, so I, I would just say no one thinks Kennedy, even Republicans love John F. Kennedy. No one thinks he was idealistic or naive. They think he was a visionary. And we need statesmanship and vision going forward. Let me take us to Ukraine. Um, you were among a small group of uh, House members who tried to block President Biden's move to provide cluster munitions to Ukraine. Cluster bombs are awful, of course, it's worth saying. Um, but you have supported other weapons shipments uh, to Ukraine. Just quickly, your thoughts on why uh, cluster bombs were a red line for you? Here's what I don't understand. We spend almost a trillion dollars on defense. How is it that we don't have artillery? If you were designing a defense department, wouldn't the first thing you say is, let's have money for bullets? We spent eight times more than the next eight countries combined, and we don't have enough bullets to provide Ukraine a year into the war when everyone knows this is an artillery war. Everyone knows it's a war of attrition and artillery is what matters. This should be the central question. Why in the world are we in this state when uh, we have almost a trillion dollar defense budget? 
And my view would be if, 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 if I were uh, advising the president, I'd say call in every morning the Pentagon folks and say, why are you failing us and not having the artillery that we need? What's going wrong? Call in the defense contractors and tell them, I want more artillery production in 30 days. People say, oh, well, maybe that's unrealistic. Watch the Roosevelt docu-series to see what he did before World War II. Why can't we do that now? And I, that's what I would do instead of giving cluster bombs, which erode some of our moral authority, which even UK is against, and which hurt children and hurt uh, innocent civilians. Well, I hope you pursue that question onwards. Um, recently, during an armed services panel, you asked Colin Carl, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the Pentagon, how much more money lawmakers could expect to be asked to approve for Ukraine. You also asked him what the end game would be in this war. Let me ask you, what do you think the end game should be? Well, the end game uh, is a just peace, of course. I mean, it's a, a peace with Ukraine's sovereignty uh, respected. Uh, and I have voted, as you know, for uh, aid to Ukraine. I will continue to vote for uh, aid to Ukraine. At the same time, I have encouraged the administration to pursue dialogue and communication with Russia. When I signed a letter saying that, there was a mock outrage in the Beltway. How dare you? How could you talk about communicating with Russia? Well, it turns out the administration was wide enough, wise enough. They are communicating, and they have kept those lines of communication open. I think we should enlist allies uh, 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 like uh, uh, in India or other countries that have uh, France, uh, Israel, uh, Uruguay, other places that have potential openings into Russia to, to help see how we can have a just peace, recognizing that it was Russia that is wrong. It is totally unjustified. It was unprovoked. They invaded another sovereign nation, and there has to be territorial integrity. Uh, but any war requires communication and multi-parties to try to resolve. And uh, we should be supporting Ukraine, recognizing Ukraine is 100% in the right, Russia is unjust, uh, while at the same time uh, engaging in uh, ways to try to find a just end. Let's go to India. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi recently visited Washington for a state visit. You pushed directly for Modi to address a joint session of Congress. You succeeded in that. But under Modi, of course, criticism of India's human rights record has ramped up. Democracy has slipped, according to several independent measures uh, that this magazine has often published. Some of your own party's representatives boycotted Modi's speech. Talk us through your thinking uh, in rolling out the red carpet for Modi. He's the elected leader of 1.4 billion people, and it's a nation that is two generations removed from colonialism. My grandfather was in jail uh, at the same time of, of Gandhi in 1942 for four years, fighting for India's independence, and was in jail in 31 and 32, worked for Lala Lajpat Rai. I guess because of that history, I have a particular sensitivity to how India would perceive lectures on human rights and morality from the West. I mean, the British used to have those lectures in the justification of colonialism. That doesn't mean that you do not raise human rights issues or you do not raise minority rights issues. I raised them, uh, uh, as did others, with the prime minister, as did the president. But the, the, the conversation has to be one of respect and one of respecting another democracy and saying there are challenges to democracy. And how do you build a multiracial, multiethnic democracy that respects minority rights? And what are we doing uh, in the United States to do that? And what is India doing to do that? To do that? And uh, having a, uh, a frank conversation uh, about those issues, but one with respect and one which recognizes uh, India's history. Congressman, you said you brought those issues up with Prime Minister Modi. I, I have to say, as a journalist, I've had no luck bringing up those issues. Uh, we, we do not get interviews with him or press conferences. Um, but can I ask how he responded? Well, he, he, he said, uh, uh, Ro, come with me. I go and celebrate uh, the Muslim holidays, the Sikh holidays. This is a, a, a bias of the media. This is not uh, the facts on the ground. Uh, and then, to which I said, uh, I, I believe that the state has an affirmative responsibility in all uh, democratic nations, not just to be 
absent uh, in uh, engaging in discrimination against minorities, but to protect minorities if there is uh, agitation in, by uh, citizens and, in, and, and they have an affirmative responsibility. And these are challenges that multiracial, multiethnic democracies face. And we need to have continue to have those uh, candid conversations while recognizing that India is an emerging power, that it is a democracy, and that it is not going to march in lockstep with the United States. Uh, it's going to have its own identity. But we both have a mutual interest in making sure that there is no hegemon in uh, Asia. You know, a lot of American policymakers often describe India as a strategic partner, a strategic ally. And I'm wondering how you think about that and if you can explain that, because after all, New Delhi buys a lot of Russian crude, hardly fits cleanly into a rubric of alliances of democracies uh, that President Biden often talks about. It's extremely unlikely to come to Washington's aid if there's a conflict with China. Um, how do you see India's role as an American friend? Well, first of all, we're both uh, democracies. Secondly, uh, Indians like America. That helps. Uh, the Indian American community has been critical to uh, contributing to America's success. Uh, that, I think, binds us. So there's a cultural tie. There's a values tie of, uh, of, of, of democracy. It's uh, and as Armartya Sen has written in an argumentative Indian, I mean, there's a robust tradition of argument uh, in, in India, just like there is in the United States. And uh, both are uh, large, messy uh, democracies. But there is a, a mutual interest. And that interest for the United States is simple. It is not uh, a, an interest which it says that uh, India somehow is going to be uh, like a NATO ally, always aligned with the United States. I forget, I think Ashley Tellis or someone wrote some piece right. in some journal saying, well, they're not going to march lockstep with the United States. Well, of course, they're not going to march lockstep with the United States. They have a colonial past. And anyone who understands the history of colonialism and Nehru's non-aligned movement, which, by the way, China still uh, adopts, would understand that Asian nations that faced colonialism aren't going to march lockstep with the West. But that's not what the United States needs. What the United States needs is to make sure that no one emerges as a hegemon uh, in uh, Asia. And on that, the in, India is absolutely aligned with the United States. In fact, they were aligned with the United States with Kennedy. And then Nixon and, and Kissinger said, well, look, we got to get the China deal uh, because partly they believe that as a counter to the Soviets, partly Nixon wanted to win in the polls. His poll numbers shot through the roof when he got the China deal. And so they went through Pakistan. They did the China deal. And uh, this made India concerned about the their own security and it pushed them in the in the Soviet uh, towards the Soviet direction. But now that has changed. And so the India and the United States are both uh, allied in making sure that no one emerges as a dominant uh, power, coercive power in Asia. And that should be the premise of a strategic interest. That doesn't mean that we need them uh, doing everything we we want. We interviewed Ashley Tellis on this program, in fact, uh, and our viewers can listen to um, how he described uh, the strategic partnership, but also the differences between the two. I'll also just point out, Congressman uh, Amartya Sen, uh, who you mentioned um, today, would describe India not as a democracy, but uh, something else, uh, just worth pointing out. Um, yeah. I have to ask a well, domestic... Then, I have great admiration for sending forward one of the great things I've ever had happen is he forwarded my book, uh, Dignity in a Digital Age, and he's, of course... Uh, deeply critical of the current Indian government. But I think he would argue deep down Indian, India has democracy in its soul. I, I, I don't think he would give up on the uh, the aspirations of democracy in, in, in India. Fair enough. Let me ask you a, a couple of domestic questions while I still have you. Um, U.S. voters don't like President Biden that much. His approval rating is quite low, as is Trump's. But we have two 80-year-olds running um, in the 2024 race. It's not ideal, is it? Well, I think there's going to be a new generation that emerges, uh, but it'll be 2028, 2032, uh, and onwards. So 2028, I certainly think, will be a new generation. But I'll tell you why people are holding on to, 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 to uh, the past, because there's been so much change. There's, there's, 
Their towns in certain places have been hollowed out. Life was better for many Americans uh, in some of these places economically uh, in, in, for their grandparents or for their parents. Now, life is better in America, I would argue, today because uh, women have many more rights. African-Americans have many more rights. Indian-Americans have many more rights. Indians and Asians are allowed to come to America, which they basically weren't before 65. But we made mistakes uh, on, on economic policy where we hollowed out industrial towns. Uh, people are fearful of the changes with technology and globalization. So some of it is that they want to cling to what they can trust and what is familiar. And I, I think that in part explains why we have these older folks in office and running for president. But there will be a burst of new uh, energy and a new generation. And, you know, President Obama captured the imagination of the American public, and he had great talent because he did so telling a very patriotic story. And we need uh, a new generation of leaders in their own voice, in their own way, uh, to, to help build on what he started. You know, we have so many people writing in to ask you questions. I've been trying to channel many of them. Let me name check one, and it's a good way to bring us back full circle. This is Jeremiah Ostricker, who wants to ask you, Congressman, why not help China's rise? Do we need to be enemies? Well, I don't I don't wish the Chinese people uh, badly. I, 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 what I want to focus on is why uh, the policies hollowed out industry after industry in the United States. And that made the project of multiracial, multiethnic democracy much harder for the United States, which in turn makes the project of uh, world peace and world stability much harder because American leadership matters. So what I want to do is rebalance the relationship so that we have thriving towns, so we, we have thriving manufacturing bases, so that we have a thriving a nation. And some of that means uh, checking the unfair trade practices, checking the intellectual property theft, checking the offshoring of all of our industries. If China rebalances and uh, does not just have this view of becoming a, uh, a, a manufacturing center and actually diversifies its economy. And if they start to see some kind of political reform to, to value the, the lives of their, of their, their people, then, uh, then I, don't, I don't wish them uh, poorly. I don't, I don't think there's things we're doing that would prevent their rise as long as it's an ethical rise uh, and all, as long as it's not hurting the American people. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that was Congressman Ro Khanna. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And you heard earlier, we have an AMA coming up. That's an Ask Me Anything. Share your questions with us on the website or by emailing us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. I will take your questions. That is it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. 
I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.